Hey, how's it going? This is Evan Jackson, video production director of New Life Church. Thank you so much for joining us for our podcast today. It's our goal to help you grow in your faith and discover all that God has for you. I hope you're encouraged, challenged, and inspired today. Enjoy the message. Today, we are going to be in week two of our study in the Gospel of Mark. And I am very excited about this. I've been looking, uh, reading through this, not only just for sermon prep, but this has been my devotions that I've been doing for the last, I don't know, it's been a while now, maybe three months. I've been working, walking through the book of Mark so I could be a little bit ahead of the series with my personal devotions. And man, I'm just excited for you guys to get some of this. Um, and I encourage you to read it. Uh, study through it on your, on, your, on your own because we're only going to scratch the surface. In fact, we have to kind of jump around a little bit, not jump around, but jump through the book or we'll never get it done in the time we want to get it done. But last week, last week we, we kicked this thing off and we talked about how Jesus came to show us the kingdom, turn things right way up and show us just how messed up things are without him. He put a, a magnifying glass on just how weird things are in a world that is outside of his kingdom. Today, the title of the sermon is True Religion. And the big idea is this. The kingdom of God prioritizes the flourishing of humanity and all creation. This is true religion. Okay? The flourishing of humanity and of all creation. This is true religion. Would you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 2? Mark chapter 2, verse 23 and we're going to be going through chapter 3, verse 6. And this is going to be an interesting little uh, portion of Scripture for you, especially for those of you who were along with us in the journey through the Ten Commandments, because this is going to touch on that commandment, one of the commandments in that list of ten. And we're going to see what Jesus does with it. Okay, And we'll get a chance to dissect it a little bit. So let's look at it. Uh, Mark 2, 23 says this. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? We'll talk about their reaction to this in a minute. He said to them, Have you never read what, the, what David and those who were with him did when he was in need of and hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of uh, Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions. Then he told them, this is very important, the Sabbath was made for man, not man, for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man, he's referring to himself there, the Son of Man. And in fact, he's, he's actually not referring to himself. Per, he is, but he isn't. Let me say this for a second. He is saying, because the Son of Man is a title for the Messiah. Okay, when, when, when those who are hearing this, they hear him saying, the Son of Man, he's a, the Messiah is Lord of the Sabbath. But what he is doing is he's saying the Son of Man, the Messiah, and he's equating himself with that person. 
This is big deal. Okay, this is a big deal. All right. Chapter 3. Jo- uh, Jesus entered the synagogue. Again, this, this is like right in succession. He entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the, with, uh, with the um, shriveled hand, uh, Stand before us. Then he said to him, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told them, and told the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. Immediately, listen to this. Look at this. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. How they might kill him. So, these two stories in the passage introduce us to some of the important kingdom principles. First off, all rules and laws are subordinate to Jesus' authority. All rules and laws are subordinate to Jesus' authority, the Son of Man's authority, the Messiah's authority. Why is that? I'll give you the answer. Because he's the rule maker. He's the rule maker. Think about it for a second. If you're a teacher in a classroom, you have rules. Hopefully, if you're a teacher, you have rules. You have rules. What happens if the child breaks the rule? They get in trouble. A few years back, we went to Sturbridge. Anybody been to Sturbridge Village? Old Sturbridge Village? You ever go to the school there? The people love to tell, the people who work the, the, the Schoolhouse loved to tell how they used to punish kids in the cl- those, those time periods, and they always point out a knot on the, on the wall. I've been there like a billion times because I used to teach. So when we go to field trips, they would always talk about a knot, and they would make the, the kid put his nose, it was kind of low, so it would kind of hurt his back, put his nose on the knot, and he couldn't move for however long. It's like a little, to- little bit torture. Just a little, little bit torture. Just a little, just a little bit, you know. Not too much torture, just a little torture. Right? Well, we don't do things like that anymore, hopefully. But um, when you break the rule, you have to pay the consequence. But what happens when the teacher says, I don't want to do that? Does he get in trouble because he broke his own rule? No. He made the rule, therefore he can break it anytime he wants. So if the kid is caught doing something wrong and there's a, the teacher can sense a reason that there's going on, there's something going on, that teacher can show grace and remove the penalty of that law because he's the lawmaker. Does that make sense? Same with Jesus. All laws and rules are subordinate to Jesus' authority because he's the rule maker. He wrote the rules. He made the Ten Commandments. Therefore, he's not held by them. Number two, God's rules uh, were made for man, not man for the rules. What was made first? What was made first? The rules or man? Man. 
man was made first. God made man. And then man did what men do. They messed it up. We did. Although I blame Eve. She ate the fruit first. But um, we messed it up. We messed it up. So the rules came so that we could live a life that was uh, flourishing and thriving in this new broken world. So the rules were made for man for their benefit, not man made for the rules. Okay, So we've got to keep that in mind. To that end, he always prioritizes, this is Jesus, he always prior, prioritizes human welfare over empty rule keeping. The focus here is on Jesus' authority. He forgives sins. They don't like that. He calls sinners who need deliverance. Just to let you in on a little secret, that's all of us. They don't like that either. He introduces new practices fit for the new kingdom. They hate that. Why do they hate that? Why do they hate that Jesus is introducing new practices for a new kingdom? Because they've got the old practices locked down, man. They know where they stand. They know how things work. They know the flow. But when Jesus comes in, he starts wrecking the flow. And they're like, whoa, I don't know how to do this. We need to get it back to the status quo quickly. We need this guy out of the way. Not only does he not follow, he, he brings in new ways of thinking about things. He critiques old traditions. Now, he doesn't critique the word. He critiques their traditions. Let me, for example, we're walking through the fields, picking grain, right? Now, there was Jewish law, or Jewish traditional law, that buffered the God-given law from Mount Sinai. They were so concerned about not breaking the letter of the law given by Moses that they, they built these buffer laws around the main law. So they had things like you can't walk more than a certain distance on the Sabbath. That would be considered work. And in fact, if you, if you, if you are aware, that's why a lot of synagogues, in, in, especially in uh, our time, they don't have like parking lots. Because you'd never drive longer than a, it's always within walking distance of a certain distance. You can't walk or you can't drive or you can't go any farther than a certain... It's still, they're still doing it today. So there were these laws, these rules, these traditional things built around God's law that padded it. And I think originally their intent was good. You know, we don't want to break God's laws. We want to, we want to make sure that we don't even get close to them. I think for, for some I mean, so some purpose, that's a good thing. Think about it. We live in a culture that loves to ride that fence, right? I'm doing good, I'm doing bad. You know, we're, we're, we're sitting right on that thing. They're saying, no, we don't want to sit right on the law. We want to be over here. And in fact, as, as the years passed, they started getting over here and over here and over here. And then we get into the concept of religious legalism. Religious legalism that says, if you, don't do, if you don't live a certain way and culturally separate in such a way, then you are no longer a Christian or you're no longer Jewish. Or, you know, that's not. So Jesus is bringing it back. He's like, no, I was there when the law was written. I knew the intent. I knew the reason for it. Let's get back to kingdom principles. 
You might be thinking, but Pastor, didn't we just talk about how the whole, you just did a whole series on how the Ten Commandments are the, you know, the code for which civilization is built. Yes, we did. We did. We did that. And they're all very good. But what is the purpose of those Ten Commandments? You keeping them is not going to get you to heaven. But they're there for our benefit. They're there for our ability to thrive in this world. Um, we, we also learned in that series that Jesus took those laws and expanded them to help us understand their original purpose and the context for which they were codified. So in the case of the Sabbath, let's just take the one Sabbath. These new kingdom uh, policies mean that, like all other commands God has given, rest was meant to encourage the flourishing of humanity and all of creation. The rest was there to help the flourishing of not only us, but even the land. There were Sabbath years where they could not work the land because it needed some rest. Now, in modern times, we understand that this crop rotation. They didn't understand why. They just they did it because God said to do it, and then that year, they just let the, 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 the uh, field go to seed, and then in that year, all the nutrients was brought back into the ground so that then when they used it the next year, oh, wow, it worked. Big surprise, right? So it was meant for that. In each of these stories, the Sabbath is broken. The Sabbath is broken for the purpose of human flourishing. The disciples get grain as they walk through the grain fields in 2.23. And Jesus heals a man in the synagogue. Whereas the Pharisees use the law as a means to gain power, the Pharisees use the law as a means to gain power and resented any threat to it, Jesus reveals the true intent of the law, which is this, to bring about human flourishing and restore the places where it, hit, where it has been broken. The law was given so that broken people living in a broken world could live a kingdom life. That's what it was given for. And we talked about that in the whole series. We, need, we don't need to retread that ground. But what I'm trying to say here is that Jesus is saying, you are such hypocrites. You would actually tell me that I cannot restore a man's hand just because it's on Sunday and there's an element of work to it. And he's like, you guys are such hypocrites. Doesn't the law say that if, if your donkey falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you don't leave it in the pit. You get it out. Is that not work? Yes, of course it is, you hypocrites. I think this is interesting. Now, I'm not a big fan of the New York Times, but this is interesting. Tony Schwartz authored a New York Times article entitled, Relax, You'll Be More Productive. In that article, it details the current public health crisis of chronic lack of adequate sleep. <laughs> Everybody's, I just hear a moan in the room. Uh. Our next uh, guy's night is just going to set up some cots in there. Maybe ladies, maybe just set up some cots. And... <laughs> I mean, think about the sleep issues that we have today. 
I mean, there's industries that have been built up around our lack of ability to get a good night's sleep, right? Uh, mattresses that, like, can read your mind. <laughs> Pills, teas, tricking apps, apps that trick you to fall asleep. Ever see those? It's voodoo. Don't do it. They're like, mind control, sleep. Um, it's a huge industry. But this Times article did something I think is very interesting, and it's, it, it, it sheds a light on how we think about, just how we think about things. Ready? The most interesting part of the Times article concerned the uh, marketing that the sleep industry must, uh, the marketing that the sleep industry most relies on. So the sleep industry is looking at statistics. They're trying to figure out what to do, and here's what they looked at. It reports on studies that measured the performance of baseball players with longer sleep schedules and the productivity of a daytime nap taker. So here's, so, so here's why you rest. This is why we understand. We rest. The only reason to get a good sleep is so that we can do more. We can be more. It's not just that rest is a good thing. It's not just like being rested is good for your body. It's not just, it's, it's just that, you know, well, these guys, they did better in baseball because they got better rest. So that's why you should rest. Or these people took naps in the day. So they were way more productive in their jobs and in their industries. What? The Bible talks about rest being just an inherent good. You should have time where you're not doing something. This idea that just being at rest is not enough but it's only good if it allows us to do something better. It sees rest as not an inherent good, but as a means to a greater end, doing more. We sometimes respond to God's good gifts in the same way as the Pharisees, using them as tools for our own purposes instead of seeking the kind of flourishing they're intended to encourage. So the Pharisees used the laws of God Rather than them being an instrument for human flourishing, they use it to lock people down, to control them, to solidify their own power, and they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle it when Jesus came around and started unraveling their control. They, they are so immediate to, like, we got to kill this guy. That's how, that's how important control was to them. In a Christianity Today article entitled, Who is the Sabbath for? Amy Baker writes this. While the command to keep the Sabbath holy is not repeated in the New Testament, these stories draw us back into discovering the heart behind the initial command, which is really what Jesus is doing here. In Deuteronomy, the Israelites are commanded to rest on the seventh day as an act both of remembrance and of service to others. Here, the emphasis lies not upon God as creator, but on God as redeemer, as the one who brought the Israelites out of slavery. That's a key word. We talked about it last series. But this idea of rest is to remind us that we're not slaves. We're not slaves. In fact, we don't just sleep so that we can slave away better. We're not slaves. The Israelites must rest in order to allow their laborers to rest. 
He's saying, you guys at the top, you got to stop. Because if you don't stop, then the people who are under you can't stop. And the people who are under them can't stop. It has to start at the top. I mean, we used to live in a culture just 50 years ago or so where shops were closed on Sunday. Can you, can you imagine that? I, don't, I think it would be, I don't know what I would do. I mean, the world functioning like Chick-fil-A? I don't know. But, like, think about it. You'd have to plan ahead now, wouldn't you? You'd have to plan ahead. But because those at the top have decided that they're not going to take a break, because taking a break would mean uh, losing capital, although Chick-fil-A has proven that wrong, um, losing capital, that means that their employees, their, their managers can't take a break. That means that the employees and the sales floor and all, they, it trickles on down to the point where nobody's breaking and nobody's stopping and everybody's stressed out and haggard. You don't look haggard. You look great. I was, I was in my office and somebody came in and was like, you okay? I'm like, yeah, why? He's like, you just look really tired. I'm like, oh, perfect sermon. Yeah. Uh, but that's what, that's what Israel, God commanded, not just so that they could remember, they could, but if you don't, Man, God's saying, we all have to do this or no one's going to be able to do it. The Israelites must rest in order to allow their laborers to rest, in order to recognize the humanity, the God-given creatureliness of their fellow human beings. Whether or not these people were, uh, share their faith, he said, even, even the strangers that are within your borders, they have to do this too. Okay, so whether they shared your faith or of high social status, are women or children, slave or free? All of every, everybody had to take a break. Why? So that they could be more productive the next day. No! Because it's good to take a break. We need it. Anyway, that's, we, we, we kind of hammered on that last week. But I just want you to understand what Jesus is doing. He's bringing this back to the original purpose for it. It wasn't for control. It was for human flourishing in a broken world. So take the healing that Jesus did. He didn't just heal the man in the synagogue. He publicly restored a man who would have faced social obstacles due to his disability. You might recall a passage where um, Jesus and his disciples are walking by a, a blind man. And they asked Jesus the question, because this is what was pounded into their heads. Jesus, who sinned? Was it the man or his parents who sinned? And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, you guys are so thick. No, seriously, he, just like, he gets exasperated with them. Same thing with this guy. His, his deformity would have been not only disabling to his productivity in the world, but it also casts a pallor over him of being a sinner. Because people who have this, you know, God doesn't do this to, to, uh, to good people. You must have had something in your life, or your parents did. So he was looked on as a pariah. So when Jesus does this, he changes not only this guy's ability to do, but he also changes 
the stigma that it was attached to him. No, it wasn't because. And this also, you got to think of the way a Pharisee would. This also is essentially, essentially a forgiveness of sin. Because that's what caused this, right? So when you take that away, whoa, he forgave. Wow, they hate him. They hate him for it because they're losing the control that the, the law gave them because they were using it as a, um, they were bullies. They were bullies. Jesus recognized the humanity of a man that may have otherwise, other people may have ignored. The principle is alive through the New Testament writings. It, it's all through, not just in the Gospels, but all through the New Testament writings. And it uh, seems to be the key to new kingdom religious systems. New kingdom religious system is this. James 1, 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It's this concept of looking out for other people, caring for people. Don't let the world's system of power and control and and monetary value and things like that stain you. Don't go there. Rather, look at the life of Jesus. This is what Mark is trying to draw us into. Look at the life of Jesus, the example of Christ, and make that what true, and that's what true religion is. The early church understood that the purpose of all Scripture is to encourage human flourishing. And this was evidenced in the way they lived and treated each other. Aristides, a second century, second century philosopher, noted the care that Christians showed all people. This is just second century, guys, including women, children, and slaves. He wrote this. Listen to this. If anyone among them came into want while they themselves have nothing to spare, they fast for two or three days for him. In this way, they can supply any poor man with the food that he needs. So there's a poor person in their congregation, and they don't, I don't have anything to give them. I don't have anything extra. They would decide as a group to fast, and then they would take care of that person because they, they, they went without. And it didn't matter if they were rich, poor, slave, free, whatever. This, is the, this, is, this characterizes the church. I'm telling you, folks, there's people in this room today who need care. There's people in this room who need housing. It's getting cold out there. What could we as a church do? If there's anybody who's interested in talking to me about that afterwards, please see me. But I'm telling you, there are ways in which we as a church do not live up to the first century church or second century church. And we could do better. You know why? Do you know why? I'm going to give you a little, probably not the whole reason why, but a part of it. We've outsourced care to the state. We have. Let me, let me, let me rephrase that. We, we let the state take that from us. We didn't fight for it. We're like, okay, you can take it. <laughs> We've been back just 100 years ago. It was the churches that took care of widows and orphans and the poor. Now it's, it's state-run. So... We could do, we could, I mean, all I'm saying is this. I'm not going to get into a political dissertation, but all I'm saying is this. We could, we could do better. Could we? 
And that kind of lets us, doesn't, uh, it kind of convicts us because, you know, sometimes we think, well, I don't have much, so I'm off the hook. Well, in the first century, they would do without for themselves in order to help somebody else. Interesting thought. They understood the way that their faith was supposed to form them into self-sacrificing people. Not merely for their own sake, but for the sake of other people. First Corinthians chapter 5 says this. From now on, then, this is after conversion, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we had known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And see, the new has come. Everything is from God. This whole thing is from God. The whole, the whole kit and caboodle, the whole system is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has what? Given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, we, all, we, we, we have no problem with that until we understand what that means. That doesn't just mean you and me getting people to heaven. This is a total system reboot. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. We are given the, rep, the ministry of reconciliation to people today. To bring them out of the old system of control, of power, of these types of things, into the grace and mercy of God by how we treat them. And we are supposed to be self-denying in that goal so that we can help other people. So that they can flourish in this broken world that we have inherited due to our, due to the first Adam. See, the first Adam broke it. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, bring, makes all things new. And we are supposed to be a part of that ministry of making all things reconciliation. Now, it does have a huge portion to play in getting people to eternity, right? I don't know who said it, but somebody said it. It's hard for people to accept the gospel on a hungry stomach. It's just hard. They can't, they can't get past their own Hunger, physical need in order to hear the spirit to, to hear the spiritual. So we have to do we have to prioritize the, the kingdom of God's message of, of eternity. But what did Jesus say in his message? He said, The kingdom of God has come near. So yes, it is a future reality, but it's also something we, we're supposed to be unpacking for our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, our friends here and now. It's not just something that we get to, I'll fly away, oh glory. I hate that song. Anyway, um, because all, we're always talking about someday, someday, someday. What about right now? What about right now? What can you do right now to help restore what the devil has taken from your brother and your sister right here, right now? It's a good thing to think about. It's a good thing to think about. So, Title of the message is True Religion. What is true religion? True religion is neither rule-based nor ritual-based. True religion is a relationship with God. It's getting close to the person who's bringing the kingdom near. 
so that when we are in relationship with the king, we start to take on kingdom principles. Two things that our religions hold, uh, two things that all religions hold is that humanity is somehow separated from the divine and needs to be reconciled to him. Maybe that's an overstatement, but I think most religions, if not all religions, have this, this uh, dynamic to it. False religion seeks to solve the problem by observing rules and rituals. You do this, you get favor with God. You, you don't do this, lightning bolt. Now, this, is all, this, is the, this is the basis for Greek mythology. It's the basis I mean, for every type of religion that is, you know, works-based. True religion solves the problem by recognizing that only God could rectify that separation. And then he's done so. Right? So true religion does have rules and rituals. It does. But there is a crucial difference. In true religion, the rules and rituals are observed out of gratitude for the salvation God has provided. It's out of, it's out of wanting to be close to God. It's out of living in a kingdom reality. Not in an effort to obtain salvation. Christ is the only one. He's the one who brought the kingdom near. We just get in by his grace and mercy. True religion, which is biblical Christianity, has rules to obey. It does have rules, such as what we learned last series. Do not murder. Do not, do not commit adultery. Do not lie, etc. And rituals to observe. It has those too, such as water baptism. Oh, water baptism. If you, I'm just going to plug right here, right now. We're going to stick a big old hot tub right here. Okay? We're going to put the jets on. No, we're not going to. It's going to be warm. Okay? Hopefully. Last time was so cold. Hopefully it'll be warm. If you've never been baptized as a believer, I'm not talking about infant baptism. That's a totally different thing. But as a believer, said, I identify with Christ. I want to I live this kingdom life. I want to get baptized. I want to I show the world that I am identifying with the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you have not done that, please sign up for that. It's going to be a wonderful service. There's going to be young. There's going to be old. It's going to be all in between. We're just going to celebrate the new life that comes when a person goes from the old system to the new kingdom. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, after, after church, can you put that, that up on the wall so people can scan that QR code? That would be great. All right. So, yes, we do have rituals to observe, such as water baptisms, baptism by immersion, and the Lord's Supper or communion. We take communion. These are things that we do, the rituals. Observance of these rules and rituals is not what makes a person right with God, though. Rather, these rules and rituals are the result of the relationship with God and promote human flourishing in the right way up kingdom. They're signposts. They're altar uh, moments. Would say, they're, they're, um, you know, in Israel, what they used to do is when something big happened, when they were walking through the wilderness or they did something, when, when something kind of significant happened in their life, God would often tell them to, to put a stone or build a, a cairn of, of stones so that when people walked by, 
those things. They would ask their children, Dad, what is that stone there for? And he would say, well, son, that stone is there because God did this at this time with our people and this point in history. And it was a reminder of, that's what our rituals do. They're a reminder of, of God's goodness, his flourishing uh, kingdom in our lives. That's why we take communion uh, regularly. That's why we have things like baptism and we celebrate holidays like Easter and Christmas and, you know, all these things. We do these as, as stones of remembrance standing up. Standing stones, I should say. All right, false religion is doing things, rules and rituals, in order to try to earn God's favor. True religion is receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and thereby having a right relationship with God and then doing things, rules and rituals, out of love for God and a desire to grow closer to Him. This is what the fruit of the Spirit is as it grows. See, all that we do, all the rules, all the religions, all, all the rituals we do, are this um, John 15 thing. Now, John 15 is my favorite passage of all Scripture. It's about, it's about uh, I'm the vine, you are the branches. That whole passage, you familiar with that? You know, remain in me and I'll remain in you, and those who remain in me will bear much fruit. All the things that we do are this process of trying to get so close to our king understanding his kingdom principles so that we can flourish in this life and we can also help other people flourish. And that, that closeness to God, John 15 says, will bear much fruit. It's not us doing the work. It's us get, abiding in the vine, getting as close to God as we can, and he produces the fruit in us. You see how that works? It's, it's all about getting closer because he does the work right he feeds he heals we can just be agents of that through the fruit of the spirit then when we can do that when we start bearing fruit when we start abiding in the vine when we start living the kingdom life that jesus reveals to us in the gospel of mark then we will see people as the king sees people Then we'll see the man with a withered hand in a proper way. Not as some sinner that needs to be ostracized, but as a child of God who needs help and love and healing. That's when we begin to see the world in light of Jesus' kingdom. It changes the way you see everything. It changes the way you see politics. It changes the way you see the social issues of our day. It changes the way you see it. It, go, it. it takes you from anger sometimes to sadness in many ways. It makes you see the world like Jesus saw them. It says Jesus looked at the people and he was sad because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. They were not doing good things. They were not living right. They were not. But instead of being angry at them, he had compassion because they were so lost. And he just wanted to, another passage says he weeped over the Jerusalem because he just wanted, he wanted to bring them in under his wings like a, like, a, like a mother hen cares for her chicks. That's how his, and that's how our mind will change when we look at our world if we take on 
the mind of Christ, the king who, brought it, who, who not only brought it to the world, brought it near, but actually showed us how, how to live it. That's when, that's when, religion becomes more than just sitting in a church building. Say that loosely here. Sitting in seats, listening to a sermon, maybe singing some songs. That's when religion becomes transformative, not only for you, but for people around you. That's when we begin to practice true religion. Lord, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters today. God, we're all in process and we're all learning. God, you know how I've struggled this week with this message. Because I'm not perfect at this. You know how I question even going on a week-long mission trip to Peru because I was a little bit nervous it'd be uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm not great at this either. But your word is true. And you're not asking us to keep it out of rote. You're asking us to keep it out of love. You're asking us to draw close to the king and t- start to embody king principles. To abide in the vine and you through us will bear much fruit. So God, be with my brothers and sisters today. Help us to practice true religion in our homes, in our workplaces, in our society, in our world, and yes, here in our church. Help us to love one another. That's the commandment you gave us. God, go with us today. Help us to live out this true kingdom religion. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless. Go do it this week, huh? I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. To find out more about New Life Church or to plan a visit, go to our website at discovernewlife.org.